Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're listening to The Well-Read Anarchist. This is episode two of this podcast series, an introduction to Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Every field of inquiry has its origin story, and anarchism is no different. And as long as that field of inquiry remains vibrant, debate, often of the most acrimonious variety, will rage over that origin story. Here again, anarchism is no different. There is no single correct answer as to precisely when, where, or how the anarchist school of thought was born. As with so many other political philosophies, its earliest forms predate the name itself. Some identify early 19th century thinker William Godwin as one of the key progenitors of what came to be known as anarchism. Others cast their gaze further back. Anarchist themes or ideas have been discerned in the writings of Taoist philosopher Lao Tzu writing in the 6th century BC, and in the teachings of the Cynics and the Stoics in ancient Greece. Some even argue that Jesus and his disciples represent the first truly anarchic society. But if we turn our attention to the much narrower problem of who was the first self-proclaimed anarchist, on that point there is thankfully no debate. The honor falls to Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. The proclamation is unequivocal and comes early on in Proudhon's career. In his first major work, What is Property?, Proudhon lays out his still scandalous argument that property is theft, and proudly proclaims himself an anarchist in an exchange with a fictitious interlocutor. You are a Republican. A Republican? Yes, but that word specifies nothing. Res public, that is, the public thing. Now, whoever is interested in public affairs, no matter under what form of government, may call himself a Republican. Even kings are Republicans. Well, you are a Democrat. No. What, you would have a monarchy? No. A constitutionalist? God forbid. You are then an aristocrat? Not at all. You want a mixed government? Still less. What are you then? I am an anarchist. It is a bold proclamation. But what does it mean? Even for Proudhon himself, the answer to that question was fluid subject to revision as his thinking developed and matured over the course of his life. Author of Justice, Order, and Anarchy, The International Political Theory of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, Dr. Alex Pritchard. So he, he has, in the, what is property towards the back end of the book, when he's trying to explain what, what the whole thing means, what this critique of property and the state actually entails in terms of his politics, he, what he tries to do is he tries to embed uh, this, this really quite bombastic claim that he's an anarchist in much more accepted um, political ideology. So, so he essentially embeds himself in the Republican tradition of France at the time. Um, at, it, at its heart, it's anti-monarchist. However, many of the sort of pre-19th century, late 18th and early 19th century Republicans were also constitutional monarchists. So it's really, it's a bit confusing about how he embeds it, but essentially what he's arguing is that, you know, he's for freedom, which is what the Republicans were too, uh, and against domination, which is essentially what the monarchy stood for. But what he did was he took this idea of freedom from domination, tied that up with a critique of capitalism and of the state, which put him at odds with the established Republicans and with uh, the liberal bourgeoisie, who were obviously the emerging class at the time. And because he was a, a, a virulent, he had a, you know, a vociferous critique of of, of the established order, aligning himself with anarchy, suggested a whole range of emotive interpretations of politics that I think were absolutely central to establishing his name as a social theorist. 
So what I'm trying to say is that his anarchism was embedded in this Republican critique of domination, but it was also a Republican critique of capitalism and of the state. And because there was no tradition of anarchism, if you like, really because anarchy was the idea that people associated with sort of lawlessness or I suppose not lawlessness, but the absence of a state, anarchy being central to ideas about the state of nature that were central to the works of Hobbes, Kant, and Rousseau, and all of the social theorists that everyone would have been familiar with at the time. Aligning himself with this idea of anarchy was, was bombastic as much as anything, and he spent literally the next 25 years explaining what he meant by that term. Perhaps it is telling that Proudhon introduces his conception of anarchy not as an idea, but as a form of self-definition. In that vein, just as anarchists might seek the origin story of anarchism to better understand the philosophy itself, perhaps we can better understand Proudhon's anarchism by better understanding Proudhon's own origins. Who, then, was Pierre-Joseph Proudhon? As Proudhon's friend J.A. Langlois wrote in the classic introduction to the thinker, P.J. Proudhon, His Life and His Works, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon was born on the 15th of January, 1809, in a suburb of Besançon called Mouillère. His father and mother were employed in the great brewery belonging to Monsieur Renault. His father, though a cousin of the jurist Proudhon, the celebrated professor in the faculty of Dijon, was a journeyman brewer. His mother, a genuine peasant, was a common servant. She was an orderly person of great good sense, and, as they who knew her say, a superior woman of heroic character, to use the expression of the venerable Monsieur Weiss, the librarian at Besançon. She it was especially whom Proudhon resembled, she and his grandfather Tournesy, the soldier peasant of whom his mother told him, and whose courageous deeds he has described in his work on justice. Proudhon, who always felt a great veneration for his mother Catherine, gave her name to the elder of his daughters. In 1814, when Besançon was blockaded, Mouillère, which stood in front of the walls of the town, was destroyed in the defence of the place and Proudhon's father established a cooper's shop in a suburb of Baton called Vigneron. Very honest, but simple-minded and short-sighted, this cooper, the father of five children of whom Pierre-Joseph was the oldest, passed his life in poverty. At eight years of age, Proudhon either made himself useful in the house or tended the cattle out of doors. No one should fail to read that beautiful and precious page of his work on justice, in which he describes the rural sports which he enjoyed when a neat herd. At the age of twelve, he was a cellar-boy in an inn. This, however, did not prevent him from studying. His mother was greatly aided by Monsieur Renault, the former owner of the brewery, who had at that time retired from business and was engaged in the education of his children. Proudhon entered school as a day-scholar in the sixth class. He was necessarily irregular in his attendance. Domestic cares and restraints sometimes kept him from his classes. He succeeded, nevertheless, in his studies. He showed great perseverance. His family was so poor that they could not afford to furnish him with books. He was obliged to borrow them from his comrades and copy the text of his lessons. He has himself told us that he was obliged to leave his wooden shoes outside the door, that he might not disturb the classes with his noise, and that having no hat, he went to school bareheaded. One day, towards the close of his studies, on returning from the distribution of the prizes loaded with crowns, he found nothing to eat in the house. As a budding and gifted young thinker in early 19th century France, Proudhon found himself navigating through the intellectual milieu of his era, a milieu which, 
as independent scholar and Proudhon specialist Sean Wilbur explains, was full of its share of utopian and downright strange thinkers and ideas. He was writing and entering the printer's trade at a time in the late 30s, 1830s, where after the French Revolution and after Napoleon's empire, France had settled back into a constitutional monarchy. And what would become, I think what we now know as radical socialism, was bubbling up in various areas as kind of the defense of the working classes by social science. So there are what Engels referred to as the utopian socialists, Charles Fourier, who dreamed up these beautiful and strange visions of a future in which our senses would all become enormously amplified and the seas would turn to lemonade and we would fight out the world's wars with worldwide contests for who could make the best little meat pies and things like that <laughs> alongside Saint-Simon, who really thought that the engineers would eventually rule the world, which didn't prevent him from also developing a secular religion that sent his followers off on a quest around the world for a female messiah. It's a it's a period where there are a lot of remarkable and kind of remarkably mixed ideas loose in the world, and they do have that utopian character in that they're well outside the envelope of what we think of as politics now, and often came down to what now I think we would take to be a kind of pseudoscientific belief that if you just found the right model, you could fix everything. Something that strongly differentiated Proudhon from the other thinkers of his age, however, were the very pragmatic realities of his upbringing. At the periphery of French life in rural Besançon, detached from the rarefied world of cosmopolitan Paris, and born into a family not unused to crushing poverty, Proudhon's life and work came to be shaped by and rooted in his experience of what it means to be born into a world ruled by and for the wealthy and powerful for their own gain. Dr. Alex Pritchard yeah, I mean, he came from a, a peasant background, I suppose. His, his mother was a cook and a cleaner, and his father uh, was a rather unsuccessful businessman who ran a pub. Um, but he had, his extended family was was quite varied, actually. One of his, one of his, his mother or his father's distant cousin was a professor of law um, at the University of Doubs, is what I can remember. Um, but his uncle on the other side of the family was uh, one of the sans-culottes and took pride in rebelling against the French state. And then so all the way through Proudhon's background, his upbringing, he had this sort of two sides, and this sort of the academic and the scholarly, and the sort of the rebelliousness was there. But I suppose watching his father struggle as a as a as a cooper and the I mean I suppose the Napoleonic Wars were quite significant as in terms of his personal uh, development but the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars were far more uh, problematic so uh, the siege of Besançon in 1815 right at the end of the Napoleonic Wars was then followed by a two-year famine 
So when Proudhon was about six, seven years old, the, the, the area was completely destitute and he remembers walking around eating unripened corn and, and really struggling. So, that, you know, there was, there was a real, you know, you can see that the war and peace was central to his development. Likewise, famine and the injustice of essentially the, the, the plight of the, of the poor and the working class, the peasantry, even in eastern France at that time. So this made a huge impact on him. So when he went to school, uh, started his baccalaureate at the age sort of 14, 15. He um, <clears throat> was by far one of the poorest students in his class, was often mocked for, for turning up without any shoes, um, and never actually finished his baccalaureate because he had to go and work to support the, um, the, the, the Proudhon family. You know, he was probably the only um, working class revolutionary of that period. Um, working class is probably a generous way of putting it. I mean, you know, he came from pretty destitute background and so you know that i think those those personal experiences really shaped the way he approached texts the way he read his period his time the way he read the political situation in france at that at that time and i think it was hugely significant and so when you see him writing then about the institution of private property which is essentially his first major book what is property you know, the fact that he's declaiming against the institution of private property ought not to be a surprise at all the institution of private property was was fantastic if you have property if you have none then it instantly becomes a question of of social justice and so this sort of peasant background really shaped the way he read that that debate around private property essentially arguing that that it was it was impossible by natural law standards and the only way we could have an institution of private property was for the state to enforce it and so this is where this is where his anarchism starts essentially it's a dual critique of, of capitalism structured around the institution of private property and the state as that body which sustains this system of iniquity. It was with this strange amalgamation of academic aspirations and working class sensibility that Proudhon sought to craft his own solutions to the social problems of his day. In that quest, Proudhon, like many others of his time, was influenced by Hegel. Not directly, no translation of the German thinker existed in French at the time, but through his French proselytizers. As Langlois explains, We have said that, in 1848, Proudhon recognized three masters. Having no knowledge of the German language, he could not have read the works of Hegel, which at that time had not been translated into French. It was Charles Grun, a German, who had come to France to study the various philosophical and socialistic systems, who gave him the substance of the Hegelian ideas. During the winter of 1844-45, Charles Grun had some long conversations with Proudhon, which determined very decisively not the ideas, which belonged exclusively to the Byzantine thinker, but the form of the important work on which he laboured after 1843, and which was published in 1846 by Grillomer. Hegel's great idea, which Proudhon appropriated, and which he demonstrates with wonderful ability, in the system of economical contradictions, is as follows. Antinomy, that is, the existence of two laws or tendencies which are opposed to each other, is possible, not only with two different things, but with one and the same thing. Considered in their thesis, that is, in the law or tendency which created them, all the economical categories are rational. Competition, monopoly, the balance of trade and property, as well as the division of labour, machinery, taxation and credit. But, like communism and population, 
all these categories are antinomical. All are opposed not only to each other, but to themselves. All is opposition, and disorder is born of this system of opposition. Hence the subtitle of the work, Philosophy of Misery. No category can be suppressed. The opposition, antinomy, or contretendance, which exists in each of them, cannot be suppressed. Where, then, lies the solution of the social problem? Influenced by the Hegelian ideas, Proudhon began to look for it in a superior synthesis, which should reconcile the thesis and antithesis. Afterwards, while at work upon his book on justice, he saw that the antinomical terms do not cancel each other, any more than the opposite poles of an electric pile destroy each other, that they are procreative cause of motion, life, and progress, that the problem is to discover not their fusion, which would be death, but their equilibrium, an equilibrium forever unstable, varying with the development of society. Eschewing the orthodoxy of his time, Proudhon found the synthesis of these internal contradictions not in a proposed governmental or economic model, but in the idea of anarchism as order without power. Sean Wilbur. What he said about anarchism, the political anarchism, the kind of positive anarchism that he was promoting, was that it was self-government, that it was rule by reason alone, that it was the opposite of governmentalism. And he defined governmentalism as external constitution. Now, all that really means is that if there are two people attempting to govern themselves, the tools that are available to them if they are anarchists are and what they bring within themselves without any sort of external standard, any a priori governmental system. Um, you know, there's just this encounter between two people who are considered equal before one another because we don't have a government and we don't have any of the things that make government which would establish any political difference between them. Indeed, for Proudhon, anarchy is to be defined in opposition to the principle of governmentalism, which seeks to impose order through power. As he writes in his 1851 work, The General Idea of the Revolution in the 19th Century, To be governed is to be watched over, inspected, spied on, directed, legislated at, regulated, docketed, indoctrinated, preached at, controlled, assessed, weighed, censored, ordered about by men who have neither the right, nor the knowledge, nor the virtue. To be governed is to be at every operation, at every transaction, noted, registered, enrolled, taxed, stamped, measured, numbered, assessed, licensed, authorized, admonished, forbidden, reformed, corrected, punished. It is, under the pretext of public utility and in the name of the general interest, to be placed under contribution, trained, ransomed, exploited, monopolized, extorted, squeezed, mystified, robbed. Then, at the slightest resistance, the first word of complaint, to be repressed, fined, despised, harassed, tracked, abused, clubbed, disarmed, choked, imprisoned, judged, condemned, shot, deported, sacrificed, sold, betrayed, and to crown all, mocked, ridiculed, outraged, dishonored, 
That is government. That is its justice. That is its morality. Opposed to this, he proposed what he called the principle of federation, a decentralization of power that occurs when all parties are treated as sovereign entities, not subject to the authority of another. He expands on this idea in his 1863 work, The Principle of Federation, where he writes, All my economic ideas as developed over 25 years can be summed up in the words, Agricultural Industrial Federation. All my political ideas boil down to a similar formula, Political Federation or Decentralization. He finds the real-world analog for this idea in the anarchical order of the international relation of states, in which sovereign entities contract to safeguard their security, ensure their prosperity, and settle their disputes, without forsaking their sovereignty. Dr. Alex Pritchard I think that what Proudhon is trying to do with his theory of anarchism is to, in, is to find that institutional means to allow the, the most openness that is possible given the fact that we don't know where we're going. So how can we best organize to give everyone the best opportunity to realize their own ends without having those ambitions and those desires interfere with the ends of others? And typically those who have developed these sorts of projects in the past had said, well, it's the liberal bourgeoisie that are the ones that are heralding the new future, and so we need a liberal bourgeois state and so on and so forth. And for Proudhon, really, what we need to be doing is we need to be thinking about anarchy. We need to be institutionalizing anarchy. So if you cast your mind back to what I said earlier about international relations, and we think about how states exist in a condition of anarchy, well, essentially what Proudhon was doing at the back end of his career was extrapolating from that analogy. So you're saying if states can organize their relationships in anarchy, and the one conundrum that we have in international relations is if states can organize their relations in anarchy or in an orderly fashion, how does that persist? Well, Proudhon argued that a whole range of different things sustain anarchy in international relations. But he said the fact of the orderly relations that sustain international relations, the fact that they exist, is at least a prima facie idea, suggestion, claim or example that we might follow at the domestic level. So why can't all groups in society organize their relations in anarchy? Why can't all individuals do the same? Perhaps surprisingly for a man espousing such a philosophy, Proudhon himself participated for a brief time in the political experiment of France in the wake of the Revolution of 1848. He was elected to the National Constituent Assembly in June of that year, overseeing the national workshops that provided work for the unemployed. He was not personally in favor of the national workshops, believing that they failed to address the underlying conditions that created the economic hardships of the workers in the first place. His own political aspiration was the formation of a bank which would provide low-interest credit and issue exchange notes, which he believed would remove economic control from financiers and capitalists and put it in the hands of the workers. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Proudhon's tenure as a politician was as short-lived as it was unsuccessful. By 1849, he had been imprisoned for insulting Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, and upon his release he was exiled to Belgium, where he remained much of the rest of his life. Sean Wilbur. Ultimately, Proudhon was one of the people who first laid down that anarchists shouldn't engage in electoral politics rule. But part of the reason he did was because he did what he thought was the best thing to do. He got involved in what was a a revolutionary experiment, 
when you look at France in 1848 and you see the things that were proposed to that government, you know, it's obviously not business as usual. Uh, all sorts of wild and wonderful and crazy and horrifying things were on the table. And that sort of thing couldn't really last for very long. And Proudhon's falling afoul of Louis Napoleon and his imprisonment was one of the clear signs that, you know, it, it wasn't going to last for any length of time. But really, Proudhon was kind of fighting a rearguard action by the time he accepted the candidacy. He was a pretty bad politician. He really wanted to focus on on ideas. He really wanted to take immediate action for, you know, what San Simone had called the poorest and most numerous class. He said the things that one ought to say to power that don't keep you in politics very long. Perhaps more detrimental to his reputation as a radical thinker than his imprisonment in exile, however, has been the way that his work has been marginalized, ignored, and downplayed by anarchists for much of the past century and a half. Partly this was due to the vagaries of history. The time period of Proudhon's productive career slightly predated the era of industrial manufacture and the rise of the workers' movement, which came to dominate radical thought in the later 19th century, so Proudhon's writings seemed to lack relevance for the anarchist philosophers as their struggle developed. But some of Proudhon's marginalization has been due to his own writings. Much has been made of his racist and sexist beliefs, and what has been interpreted as apologia for war. That early 20th century proto-fascists and national socialists specifically regarded Proudhon as one of their philosophical progenitors did not help matters. Some of these concerns are justified, others have been exaggerated or taken out of context or outright fabricated over the decades of neglect that his works have endured. Many have developed their critique of Proudhon less from a reading of his own words and more in the reading of others' words about him. Proudhon scholars today tend to admit that he made serious errors in his thinking on certain issues while denying the greater charges of war glorification or proto-fascism. Sean Wilbur. Proudhon was wrong in some very, very serious ways on a, a fairly small number of possibly predictable questions. You know, there's no point in attempting to apologize for these things. They just have assumed perhaps a greater importance than they might. Let me, let me sort of run through the usual criticisms and how I understand them. I think the most obvious misunderstanding is the Proudhon as glorifier of war and potential proto-fascist. There were, in fact, people kind of at the beginnings of fascism who latched on to bits and pieces of Proudhon and incorporated it into some pretty awful ideologies, as they did with Nietzsche, as they did with Sterner, and quite a few others. So I think the Proudhon as proto-fascist thing is pretty thin. Proudhon as anti-Semite... There are two or three really, really horrible things in his private notebooks. That's that's a much tougher question to work out because it's hard to weigh the 50 volumes where there isn't a peep of that kind of stuff with the sheer horribleness of the two paragraphs that we do have. And you know, I I think people just have to kind of kind of figure out for themselves how to weight that stuff. The place that 
I think there isn't much question is that Proudhon was a, a conservative when it came to, to family structures. He was a, an anti-feminist. He, in the process of rationalizing his anti-feminism, wrote some pretty rotten books. But he's in all that stuff. He's really torn himself. You'll, you'll read his Catechism of Marriage, where he's trying to show how kind of heteronormative family relations between married couples are, in fact, the basis of justice in society. And, you know, there's some good stuff there. He's got a social basis of society. When he's talking about justice, he thinks that women and men are equal. Some of it would be really forward-thinking if the way that he understood the specific differences, the gender differences, wasn't so damn backward. Uh, I, I don't think ultimately the really bad stuff even makes a dent in what's really good about Proudhon's writing. And I think once we get past the point of feeling that, you know, he was in some ways a pretty rotten dude, I think that the mistakes he made might even be good at preventing us from making some. In some ways, perhaps Proudhon foresaw his own relegation to the peripheries of anarchist history, worthy perhaps of a mention as the progenitor of the term, but unworthy even now, 150 years later, of having the majority of his writings translated into English. As he wrote in his letter to the Academy of Besançon that became the preface to the first edition of What is Property?, the 19th century is, in my eyes, a genesic era in which new principles are elaborated, but in which nothing that is written shall endure. Or perhaps not. Perhaps the anarchist canon, like all canons, is subject to revision, and perhaps the fortunes of Proudhon's intellectual legacy, like the fortunes of the legacy of all great figures, experiences ebbs and flows as new generations re-examine the writings of the past masters. Is Proudhon's work overdue for a reassessment? Dr. Alex Pritchard um, well, I mean, I, I, I hope so. I mean, my, the point of my book really is to try and encourage people to read Proudhon again. I mean, the, I really do think that, you know, it's high time, really, that anarchists, they understood their history a little better. I think that uh, most anarchists will tell you that they're, well, I shouldn't generalize too much, but I would say that a large portion of the anarchist community uh, is is generally quite uninterested in its historical past. And uh, and I think this is really problematic for two reasons. First of all, uh, it, re- it, it essentially results in this in a, in a condition of presentism, okay, where essentially, you know, I mean, Eric Hobsbawm has this wonderful line uh, where he says that uh, most young people at the century's end, and obviously he's writing at the end of the last century, said, so most young people at the century's end growing up, up in a sort of permanent present, lacking any organic relation to the public past of the times they lived in. And I think the anarchists are as guilty of that uh, uh, as anyone else, frankly. And I think part of that is because a turn to uh, sort of radical French philosophy that is unhistorical in quite important ways. Um, and this results in a type of presentism which means that contemporary anarchists can't link their struggles back into the historical genesis of those struggles themselves. And so we're constantly reinventing the wheel. And I think that this is deeply problematic. 
So part of my, my aim, and I've published, I've written about this in a number of different places, part of what I'm trying to do is resurrect that historical tradition to, to bring that big sweep back, really, to give that historical context back. And, I've, and there's a whole range of debates around this. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm right about this, but but I would say that you know the, the debate that's emerging around this question of the resuscitation of past masters, quote unquote, is really really important for the anarchist tradition. We don't have a Marx. Okay? We don't have a Marxism. We don't have a single text to which it's quite acceptable to return to to find out what the what the standard position is on X, Y, or Z. We have a whole range of positions, which I think is much healthier. Um, and I think that we reject that at our at our cost, really. I think that, you know, going back to the works of Proudhon, Bakunin, Kropotkin is an enlightening exercise in and of itself. But I also think it sheds light on what is most unique about the times we live in. It helps us see our own times much more clearly because we can tell the difference between the past and the present. And without being able to tell that difference, not only do we not be able not only can we not see the links between those times, so what generated our times, but we can't think about radical alternatives because those alternatives are always given to us in the present. Uh, then it's never suggested that anything of any original import was concocted in the past. So this is really what I'm trying to do now. And my, my, my future work will really be about trying to do precisely this. So to, to link contemporary theory and political philosophy into some of the ideas that Proudhon was developing back then to sort of to sort of bring it back up to date, if you like. But I still think that that historical exegesis, that that recovery is absolutely vital as a first step. And without that, then you know, we really can't do the second part any justice. The debate over the canon, like the debate over the origins of anarchism, is not likely to end anytime soon. And perhaps it never should. The debate, after all, proves that it is still a living field of inquiry, that people are still working, still thinking, still going back and recovering the past to see how it expands our understanding of the present moment. Sometimes the study of these great thinkers is important because they can teach us how to think about our own problems. Sometimes this study is important because it can help us to avoid the errors of the past. Whatever the case, the debate rages on. But whatever his place in the anarchist canon of today or tomorrow, one thing is for certain. Proudhon was, is, and ever shall be the first self-proclaimed anarchist. This is James Corbett. Thank you for joining me for this edition of The Well-Read Anarchist. A transcript and links to the sources used in this podcast can be found at CorbettReport.com. Please subscribe to the RSS feed for this podcast on CorbettReport.com to automatically receive future editions of the series in your podcatcher. And please join us next week as we begin our study of the writings of Proudhon with a reading of What is Property? <laughs>